What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of stories, writing, and culture. First, we'll speak with author Frida Wyshynski about different stories that we tell. Then Margaret Blair Young will talk about bridging the gap between cultures. Our last guest will be Ilya Kowalczyk, sharing how to connect the classroom and pop culture. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table to speak with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we will continue the reading of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, and we'll hear more about holiday traditions from around the world. But first, let's step into my world. Rachel's When I was a young girl, I faced a lot of challenges in school. Much later in life, I was formally diagnosed with a learning disability. But when I was young, I did not fully understand that the challenges I had were directly related to my disability. While I had very supportive parents and many teachers who also helped me, I am sad to say that not all my experiences were positive. One of my hopes is that no child would ever have to go through some of the heartache I did, and so I work to advocate for all children and all learning styles in my work. Today, our understanding of learning disabilities, and in fact all disabilities, is much richer than when I was a girl, and we've made some big strides in helping children learn and grow, especially in school. But there is still a lot we can do as concerned adults to look out for our children. One of the most important things we can do as adults is really pay attention. And if our children show signs of some kind of learning disability, we need to work to get them the help and support that they may need. There are lots of early signs that we can look out for to indicate a child might have dyslexia, for example. Some of these might include a child having difficulty pronouncing words or not adding words to their vocabulary as rapidly as other kids. Other signs, such as not being able to follow complex directions or the sequence of a story, can also indicate that there might be something to be concerned about. Even some things we might not think are associated with a disability can be an indicator. For example, with dyslexia, which is a reading disability, having trouble telling time that's a number ability can also be an early indicator. While every child learns and grows at their own pace, When a child is struggling with something we would think would be typical at a particular age, then it's likely a sign that we should look into things just a little bit more. Because the reality is that getting help early makes a huge difference, especially when it comes to school success. So if you see any signs that indicate your child might have a learning disability, here at Rachel's World, we encourage you to work with your school and advocate for your student for testing and diagnosis so they can get all the help and support they need to develop as strong learners. Rachel's World Stories exist all around us. Sometimes you just have to keep your eyes open to find them. Today, we're on the phone with author Frida Wyshynski. Welcome, Frida. Hi. Good to speak to you. 
Oh, Frida, I am very much looking forward to introducing you to our listeners today. So to start out, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what it is that you write? Um, I'm, I was born in Germany, but I was only there for eight months. And then my parents um, moved to New York, so I'm from Manhattan, and got a... Uh, a BA in international relations, and then didn't know what to do with it, switched to special education. And while I was teaching, I started to write. But I've always been a writer. Um, my mother was a storyteller, and I'm to- I see the world in stories. I think I see everything as a story. And, um, and actually, you know, watching polit- people say, what's the connection between international relations and um, writing, and I say, well, just pay attention to what's going on in the world. It's about kids in the playground. It's all about those same things that kids react to and how they act is how grown-ups do. So the world is pretty much just about story and people. It truly is that great connection that, that the world is stories. And I, I appreciate that you say that you just love stories so much because I feel that same way. I, I am a story junkie, I tell people, and I think you have that same sense. So particularly when you're picking stories, I mean, I don't think you can tell every story in the world, but when when you pick a story to write, why is it that you, you pick that particular story to tell? I, I love the question. I was I was at a we have in Canada. I live in Canada in Toronto. We have an organization called Campscape, and it's Canadians, authors, and illustrators. It's sort of like the American Libby organization. And I was saying to a friend that I really believe we write our life without realizing it all the time. So the stories I tell are the stories I need to tell, and sometimes I'm not aware of why I've written something until I finished. I just, you know, there's so many things you can pick, and I'm always writing down ideas. I always have paper with me. And I'll, something will just, something I read, something I see, something I experience. But then the one you pick, there must be some reason why that particular story, or that, and I do a lot of nonfiction, is speaking to you right now. Um, and, and then you realize it somehow links with something you're experiencing or something you're grappling with or just something that's important to you. So that's why I think no one can write like anyone else because everybody's different and everyone picks something else that's important to them and yet there's universality to it because we all experience bullies, we all experience loss and sadness and joy and all those emotions but just differently, you know, within the framework of our own experiences. Frida, that makes so much sense to me, this sense of universality, because when we speak to authors, we do see that there are similarities. But this sense that you're writing your own life that distinctly makes those differences. You particularly have a very eclectic background when you talk about international studies and, and the political science and then special education and then writing. So when you are picking these stories, are, are there certain stories that you feel stick out to you more as you're writing, particularly when you're picking your nonfiction? Are there certain stories that you think particularly children need to be aware of? And do you pick stories based on 
on that kind of sense where you're trying to say this is something that I think is so important to our world that I need to help convey that to my readers? I know this is going to sound not sort of idealistic. Um, I have a a writing uh, friend who always talks about changing the world, to be perfectly honest, and I'm, I'm very much about doing what I can to change the world. When I write, I don't think about that. I don't even think about my reader. Something just compels me to tell the story. And it's only afterwards that I realize, wow, I think I'm telling, writing about that person because it's really important to me now. But it's sort of like you're just pulled and drawn into something. And I certainly write now, and I know I'm not the only one, I'm writing a lot about women who have been unsung. And I've done quite a few of those um, connections before, but um, I realize that, you know, that's really um, become an important focus to me. And, um, you know, I think it's in the ether right now, um, even though I've done it before. And, you, you know, obviously it's it's an important story. I need to tell somebody else might not feel as drawn to it. So, um, and in the end, I think it is helpful. Um, to kids, but that's not my prime, the reason I write. I don't say, oh, I'm going to be, because I think that's what kills the story, a messagey thing. There should be a message in the story, but you shouldn't write the message because nobody wants to read a message. You want to read a story. That really authentic place you come from, Frida, is is so empowering. And I would agree with you that oftentimes when people set out to change the world or set out to have a message, that it often gets in the way of story. Um, some authors can do that really well. Others, um, it just becomes didactic and, and something we don't want to read. So that is one of the things that I really appreciate about your works is that you do stick to that sense of story. And and ultimately at this, that you, you really are trying to tell tell a really great story. So as you approach these really great stories that you're telling, what kind of strategies do you use to help you break down those stories or make sure that you're really telling a story in the way that you think it needs to be told? I think one of the problems, and I've I've done a lot of um, mentoring, and I I do edit other people's work, and I teach writing. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be doing some workshops in writing in April near Ottawa, and um, I've seen writers often try to do too much, especially a picture book. You can't do too much. But no matter what you write, you know that, I hate to use this parallel, but it's true, you know, the elevator, you know, when you, you're supposed to give a quick synopsis for TV, what do they call it, the elevator, whatever. If you can't really say it within a sentence or two, you don't know it. A story can't be about too much. There can be threads underneath, but they all have to link up to a central theme. And um, trying to be clear, which you can't always tell right away. Sometimes you have to write and then figure out what your theme is. So you can approach it from lots of different ways. But there has to be a central moving, driving force to every story. And and I also believe everybody has their themes. I know I have themes that I keep coming back to. Um, And I think my themes might be different from somebody else's themes because I'm a different person. 
as you approach those different themes and as you tell these stories, I know a lot of the stories you tell are challenging. I mean, you tell you tell stories of about people in perilous situations or you tell stories about individuals, biographies about individuals who have had complex lives. So when you face these kinds of different themes, particularly that those are, that are challenging, what are some of the challenges that you face as you address these themes and how do you address those challenges? I think I try to think of how I would relate in those situations. It's very funny because I'm very drawn to, and I've written a couple times about people in extreme situations. I'm even drawn to stories about mountain climbers, and there's no way I'd climb a mountain. <laughs> I'm not a physical risk taker. I'm a verbal risk taker. I, I'm very, uh, I'm not shy or anything. But I'm fascinated by somebody who would put their lives at risk and why they would do that. So sometimes you write about what you don't do. And I also am fascinated by how people in impossible situations cope with it. And I've written about a number of women, and I'm awed, and you just look around now at the people who stand up and take a risk, how amazing that is, how courageous they are, and and how they have to deal with everything coming at them, especially now, it's even more challenging because everything's out there. And again, you have to, and while you're writing, you're still going, okay, what, what is my main theme here? Like there is in each story a strong main theme. And I, I realize I, I do write about people in extreme situations, how to cope, being resilient, being persistent, which are qualities I really admire. And it, sometimes I don't, know it until, as I said, I've written it. Frida, as you speak today, it really shows me that that this is a really personal endeavor for you and, and that you put a lot of yourself and a lot of who you are as an individual into your stories, even if they aren't directly your experience, even if you aren't that kind of risk taker. So as we close our conversation today, Give me a sense of what happens after you send it out in the world, because these are personal for you. How do you react when they get sent out into the world? And, and how do you interact with with those readers that are out there that are, are taking this personal piece that you're sending out and then making it their own personal piece of reading that will impact their lives and help them to see more depth in their lives just as you are trying to do as you as you write? Well, for me, as a, as a kid, uh, reading was my way of not feeling isolated because we all have moments of, you know, am I the only one going through this? How do I cope with this experience? And I found sort of friends in books, and you hope that's what happens to somebody reading your book. The only thing is, most of the time, you don't know who's reading your book. I mean, it's out there in this kind of, you know, out there-ness. And sometimes you get an email or a letter, and that's much better than reviews even. Reviews are adults, you know, trying to show off or, you know, be very adult in their reaction to something. But the kids' responses, especially when they come out of nowhere, I'll suddenly get an email from a parent or a kid And then you feel, wow, somebody's reading it, somebody's connecting to it, this is actually meaningful to somebody, and that's the best. That's absolutely the best. But most of the time you don't know. You just hope that someone might find your book and might see something that is helpful or they can connect with 
through your words. Well, I hope our conversation today, Frida, has introduced some more readers to your books that they will find this really personal connection that you've offered to them. Thank you so much, Frida, for breaking this down for us and to giving us your open and honest critique of of what your process is. Um, It is just always so delightful for me to hear how different authors approach and, and particularly today to learn how personal your approach is to your writing. Thanks a lot. It was fun. Frida Wyshynski is a well-versed author of children's books and nonfiction. Last week, we listened as nose-to-the-grindstone Ebenezer Scrooge met the ghost of Christmas past. Today, we encounter the larger-than-life ghost of Christmas present. Let's take a listen. Come in, exclaimed the ghost. Come in and know me better, man. It was his own room. There was no doubt about that. But it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked a perfect grove, from every part of which bright gleaming berries glistened. The crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe, and ivy reflected back the light as if so many little mirrors had been scattered there. And such a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney as that dull petrifaction of a hearth had never known in Scrooge's time, or Marley's, or for many and many a winter season gone. Heaped up on the floor to form a kind of throne were turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, great joints of meat, sucking pigs, long wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelfth cakes, and seething bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their delicious steam. In easy state upon this couch, there sat a jolly giant, glorious to see, who bore a glowing torch in shape not unlike Plenty's horn, and held it up, high up, to shed its light on Scrooge as he came peeping round the door. (laughs) I am the ghost of Christmas present, said the spirit. Look upon me. Scrooge reverently did so. It was clothed in one simple deep green robe or mantle, bordered with white fur. This garment hung so loosely on the figure that its capacious breast was bare, as if disdaining to be warded or concealed by any artifice. Its feet, observable beneath the ample folds of the garment, were also bare, and on its head it wore no other covering than a holly wreath set here and there with shining icicles. Its dark brown curls were long and free, free as its genial face, its sparkling eye, its open hand, its cheery voice, its unconstrained demeanor, and its joyful air. Girded round its middle was an antique scabbard, but no sword was in it, and the ancient sheath was eaten up with rust. "'You have never seen the like of me before!' exclaimed the spirit. "'Never!' Scrooge made answer to it. I've never walked forth with the younger members of my family, meaning, for I am very young. My elder brothers, born in these later years, pursued the phantom. I don't think I have, said Scrooge. I'm afraid I have not. Have you had many brothers, spirit? More than eighteen hundred, said the ghost. 
<laughs> a tremendous family to provide for, muttered Scrooge. The ghost of Christmas present rose. Spirit, said Scrooge submissively, conduct me where you will. I went forth last night on compulsion, and I learned a lesson which is working now. Tonight, if you have aught to teach me, let me profit by it. Touch my robe. Scrooge did as he was told, and held it fast. Two ghosts down and one more to go. Check in next week to see what happens. Different cultures around the world have various levels of literacy. Some have more books than others, some have access to pens, paper, and pencils, and others don't. By learning about other cultures and how they live, we can find ways that we can help them to gain certain resources that will then aid with building their literacy. We're in studio today with author Margaret Blair Young. Welcome, Margaret. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I am very excited to talk to you today about your international experience and just the focus and beauty that you have seen in the great wide world. I know you've had a lot of experience in the Congo in Africa. And one of the things that interests me about your experience there is just your insights into the differences between the Congo and the United States. I know one of the things you have mentioned is this fact that there's not a lot of books in the Congo. And that is something that's very different. So tell us a little bit more about that, this this kind of different context of, of literacy and reading that they would have in the Congo. Th thank you for that question. That's one I'm really eager to answer. My husband and I are going to be involved with a couple of universities there in the DR Congo. My husband is fluent in French. I'm going to be taking an intensive course so that I Good for can you. reach him. <laughs> but as, as we were talking, these tend to be Catholic universities, which are the best in the Congo. But as we were talking to the priests who were running them, and my husband asked about uh, what about books, the priest said, oh, we don't really have books so you can bring your own, but of course, you know, how heavy are books to bring? And it actually can be exorbitant. Computers, you know, Kindles are not really available. There are certainly internet cafes and internet becomes more and more available as, as the years go by. But in some areas, it's just not there. There's another university we plan on working at. And uh, that one, the president of Southern Utah University, Scott Wyatt, visited that. It's in Loja in, in the DR Congo. And it was a science university. And he asked to see their library. And they explained, well, we don't really have books and took him down to the basement where the books that they had had initially when Mobutu uh, took power after Lumumba was executed. And if you don't know who those those names, go ahead and look those up. I'm not Some gonna, research is in order. Some research is in order <laughs> because people need to be better informed about the Congo. Mobutu actually did pay attention to education for the first little while. It didn't last. Uh, and eventually intellectuals tended to leave. So there had been books, and they had all been put into the basement where they had, because of the moisture of the area, completely disintegrated. So my first thing as I, as I talked to President Wyatt and found out that the Minister of Communications is from that area in Loja, I immediately went to work in, in thinking, okay, so no books. How do we solve that problem? And the first answer is, well, you can just import them, can't you? You can just import from Belgium or from Paris, and, and they would be there. Well, 
the taxes, importing fees are huge. So that's not a viable option. Kindle would seem, but we're looking from an American mindset. So I was meeting with some people who had worked with the State Department in the Congo, and I was giving them all of these dreamy ideas. And I finally said, I'm so sorry. I am a dreamer. I get that from from my father. And she said, oh, no, this is exactly what they need. There need to be dreamers. There has to be a vision of where we're going or you just wake up the next day and do what you did the day before, that nothing changes unless you're with unity as a community. This is not an individual project. You're working towards something bigger and you have in your mind a sense of what it's going to be. So as I thought about books, I went back to, okay, make books. Everybody has stories. There will be cultural stories. There will be individual stories. Children can make up stories. Oh, my goodness. The stories that children come up with are just fabulous. Um, You can translate a Cinderella story into anything in the Congo. You can translate Romeo and Juliet. You watch how many times that's been done again. West Side Story, you know, several. But their own particular stories are there to be told. So the first one was writing books. And then I talked to a man who works with an American foundation in a school. And he said, well, we don't have pens or pencils. I hadn't really noticed that. And so, of course, the next thing was not, well, then we need to bring whole shipments of pens and pencils. It was, this is the Congo. It's like the richest nation on earth. There are mines there. Are there graphite mines? Oh, sure enough. Then we can make pencils, right? Uh, And just, you know, looking up. So how do you make a pen? Well, I met with this wonderful woman, Nancy Ostergar, uh, to talk a little bit about bookmaking. She's a professional. I'm still going to be working with her to learn. And she told me about, you can make a pen out of a can, a Coca-Cola can. So I looked that up on on YouTube. And I've because of my experience in Guatemala, where I lived with people who did weaving, and it was a no-electricity area, so they had spinning wheels, they had pots of boiling herbs that would create the color for the, the thread that they would weave. And I recognized, you can get color, you can make ink. There's nothing we can't do here. We're not going to be able to immediately transport all of the technology that America has, but we can start with what the founding fathers came up with. And let's be honest, the founding fathers wrote much better than than most Americans do today. And again, that challenge we have of having too much. Uh, My dear goddaughter, Steffi Mbuyi, the wife of, of the young man who I've known for now about, oh, eight years, I talked to her about this, the remarkable ability of Congolese to figure out how to survive. And she said, see, in America, you have everything already done for you. We have to use our imaginations to figure out how to survive. Now, when we take that need of having to build on the imagination, not just to survive, but to create the things that ultimately are going to define us, when archaeologists look back at a culture they will notice the way that the people ate, how the people fished, you know, whatever. But the big thing, what art did they produce and what does that tell us about them? Uh, what, what's their pottery like? How did they create the pottery? You know, those are the things that will tell us about what that culture was like. Right now in the DR Congo, because the poverty level and the unemployment level, though there's entrepreneurship everywhere, is so low, um, money becomes – you know, how do we make money to get by the next day? And we have an opportunity to help increase the dreaming, to help increase the imagination. There are artists there, but there's no distribution. There's a wonderful filmmaker there named Shofer Kabambi who actually won an award at Cannes 
but he has no distribution. He has a studio with two computers, and that's how he makes his short films. But there's not a cinema. Kinshasa is a city of 12 million people with no cinema. When uh, I was there with uh, Sterling Van Wagner and Russ, uh, Russ Kendall and Reed Smoot last year, and Emmy said, well, why, why would you want a cinema? And Sterling, who is just a brilliant filmmaker, said, you want a cinema because it gives an opportunity for a communal dream. Everybody goes in and you get the same story. It opens conversation. It makes you start thinking about things. We can do this with cinema. We can do it with books. There are moral principles that we've learned through the great literature. My husband is an expert in Shakespeare, and Shakespeare translates into every country. I'm, uh, I'm eager to direct Romeo and Juliet to discuss tribalism when we're back in the Congo. It has implications for everyone. I've actually been hesitant to do Macbeth because it's so similar to the reality that I've thought, hmm, we could get <laughs> I into, could see that. <laughs> we could I get could into trouble <laughs> for that one. But uh, I, I see because in the Congo, it is real life. And uh, they are dealing with moral imperatives that, that uh, come from family consequences, that come from lack of money. Is it moral to steal? I uh, This young filmmaker I mentioned, Schofer, his film called Mbote, which is Lingala for hello, is about a young man who seems to have justification to steal. And he does. And that's – it's – you know, it happens. When you're poor, that that tends to happen. Sounds very Hugo-esque, Les Miserables. Oh, all, all, these, all these classics can start coming to mind. Yes. And imagine <laughs> – yeah. well, and yeah. Les Mis is yeah. already in French. Yeah. So – there you go. Bring that. Bring <laughs> yeah. that. They can buy DVDs on the street. China's a presence. You can buy pirated DVDs if China's there and look at them on the computer. That's still just a one-on-one experience. My vision is to create and, – and we have to start small. But if we train people, it gets bigger. Create little libraries with story time that many of us grew up with. Even if it was in an elementary school, even if it was in a library – It can be a story princess, a story grandma, but someone who opens the books and we look at the pictures and then we can talk about it as they grow older and they get into not just the cat in the hat, but Lois Lowry's A Number of the Stars. Beautiful book. Where where we talk about people who are heroic in defending human life. That gets us into moral imperatives that go far, far deeper than any video game is ever going to go. I love that vision because to me, it really is this foundational thing about who we are as human beings and what story can do for us. And I think engaging in those stories, the classic stories, as well as stories that we may not have heard before or people encountering people in stories that we haven't heard before help open up this wonderful global vision of the world and help us be better global citizens and in a very fundamental way that we are going to need. <laughs> we, we have ignored Africa for mo- most of the history of this part of the world has ignored Africa uh, until, you know, then it was oppositional and, of course, became the bed of, of slavery. Yeah. Regardless of who was trading whom, uh, the fact that the U.S. participated in the slave trade and yeah. that involved people from the Congo, we actually have a debt, I think, of truth and reconciliation, even this many years later. We have a debt and we have to realize that it's not just that we're going to pay off a debt and uh, maybe benefit from the minerals, but that we are going to benefit from who they are, what they have learned 
in their own growth as a country. They have moral imperatives that we may not be fully in contact with ourselves. And I think that that's a perfect note to end on today. And I'm really grateful. We've just really scratched the surface today, Margaret. And I wish we had the time to go deeper. But I hope that this will be the start of more research for all of our listeners out there to maybe figure out what are these things that they can learn from this beautiful country, these beautiful people, and how can that help them become better people and also help us with our global literacy and help our children to grow up into global citizens. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Now let's turn the time over to our student producer, Natalie Anderson, to hear about a few more Christmas traditions from around the world. Welcome to the second week of Advent. This week, we are focusing on the Christmas traditions of Asia. While there is a small population of Christians in most Asian countries, and the celebration is banned in many of them, there are still plenty of Christmas traditions to be had in the East. Christmas in Japan looks very similar to what most of us consider a traditional Christmas, with Christmas lights, trees, and decorations. But it differs in a few key ways. Firstly, it is Hoteosho, a Buddhist monk who delivers gifts to the children who have been good. It is said that he has eyes on the back of his head, so he can always watch the children to make sure they are behaving. Their food is also a bit different. Instead of celebrating with turkey, potatoes, and pies, they celebrate with KFC chicken and a special Christmas cake. In Armenia, Christmas is celebrated on the 6th of December. Historically, Christmas didn't actually have a set standard date of celebration. In the 4th century, the Roman Catholic Church established a set date, December 25th. They established the Gregorian calendar and expected everyone to follow. However, the Armenians didn't. Not only did they continue to celebrate Christmas on the 6th of December, but they also kept using the Julian calendar, which means technically they celebrate it on the 19th of December. Leading up to Christmas, many Armenians fast from meat and dairy products. On Christmas Eve, they have a traditional meal of rice and fish before they have their large meal on Christmas Day. And Santa Claus doesn't visit the Armenians during Christmas, but rather during their New Year celebrations. And his name is Grandfather Winter. Assyrians also fast in the weeks leading up to Christmas. Christmas is a very religious time of year, and the focus is more on the religious traditions rather than the secular ones for the Assyrians. On Christmas Eve, the family will light a bonfire of thorn bushes. If the bushes burn to ashes, the family will have good luck. After the fire has gone out, each member of the family will jump on the ashes three times to receive good luck. The next day, another bonfire will be lit at the church. When they return home, they will break their fast and feast on traditional foods and desserts. Afterwards, the family members exchange gifts. Christmas is a big deal in the Philippines, as it has the second largest Christian population in Asia, with around 90% of the population being Christian. They hold the record for the longest Christmas celebration in the world, with festivities beginning as early as September and going through mid-January. It is both a religious and secular holiday, with many Western traditions stemming from the Spanish influence in the Philippines. On Christmas Eve, many schools perform a type of nativity pageant, where they reenact the journey of Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem and the nativity scene after dark. Those portraying Mary and Joseph will go house to house and then get turned away. As it gets closer to midnight, they will turn to the church and find refuge in a nativity scene. It ends with the midnight mass services. On Christmas Day, families will often travel to visit the senior members of their family to greet them and wish them a Merry Christmas. Join us next week for the last Advent before Christmas when we talk about traditions in Mexico, Central America, and South America. In the meantime, what are your favorite Christmas traditions?
Pop culture has an influence on children, so why not make it a positive one? Ilya Kowalczyk is a writer with the Pop Culture Classroom, a program that works to accomplish just this. Welcome, Ilya. Good morning. It's good to talk. Something I really love about your project is that you're working to extend deep communications about the world around us through something that children already love. So to start out, tell us a little bit about how pop culture celebrates the kind of diversity and conversation that we need to be having as human beings, and how does it embrace that need? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. I I think that probably the most universal answer to that um, comes through the mythos uh, of of our popular culture stories. Um, you know, when we look at characters most commonly known like Superman or Spider Man or Wonder Woman, um, you know, the, these kinds of characters they have a story about them that a little bit of everybody can identify with. This um, you know, this struggling person or character has to overcome something and in some way is striving for something greater than themselves, right? And, 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 and I think as we all grow and change as people, we're looking to develop some kind of, you know, in quotes, superpower. Um, and, and to us on a regular basis, that might seem like something greater than we are today. And, and how can we develop those superpowers? Can, you know, we, we're not going to walk up walls or be able to fly, but, but we're, we're trying to become something more than we are today. And, and popular culture, the stories that are present in that, give um, you know, a powerful metaphor for those of us that are moving through our daily life and trying to find meaning and purpose and, and something greater than, than what we've yet been able to achieve um, you know, I, I look at characters like the X-Men, and I think what a perfect metaphor. Um, you know, as these as these characters are, are growing, they're developing these mutant powers, and their bodies are doing things that they don't understand. Like, what a perfect metaphor for adolescence, right? Like, how better to explain the sense of, I don't know what's going on with my body. I just don't get it. And and, and to, to, it's changing in ways that I don't see, um, you know, and... Um, when when we see characters like that, it's easy to understand the universal the universal appeal of pop culture um, that welcomes everybody, regardless of background, orientation, or or um, you know culture. I think that the other part of it too that's wonderful is that there's a really strong movement, and especially in comics publishing now, where the creators are telling all sorts of stories. You know. Uh, Alison Bechdel started a lot of this with her book Fun Home. Uh, it's a wonderful story about her father um, as a closeted homosexual and then um, her journey and personal understanding of herself as a lesbian. And then, you know, after that have come countless books about different elements of gender identity, of sexual orientation, of diversity, um, you know, well-known uh, actor Ethan Hawke just wrote a, a fantastic graphic novel about a Native American story called Indeh, I-N-D-E-H. Um, you know, there's there's a whole gamut and spectrum of, of books out now about people of color and their stories. Um, you know, the um, U.S. Representative John Lewis co-authored a three-volume graphic novel about his path through the civil rights era called March. It's won countless awards across all literary spectrum and 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 so what we're seeing is that this this really inviting, entertaining, and welcoming um, forum 
pop culture, whether it be comics or games or movies, is, is, is starting to be used in such a way to tell all different kinds of stories about all different sorts of backgrounds. And, and what that's doing is it's, it's further expanding the audience, right? It's these people who, who felt like maybe we've been on the margins or our stories haven't been told or maybe there's nobody like me. They're seeing these stories represented in all sorts of pop culture, and, and, it's, and, and it is kind of welcoming new and, and, and unique and wonderfully diverse readers and creators into the fold. Well, and I, I think the cool thing that I'm seeing, too, is this kind of extension into some more traditional forms, like we're seeing uh, coming out here soon, Jason Reynolds' uh, novel with the Spider-Man, who is a person of color. Um, and, and so I think we're we're extending some of even the more traditional kind of superhero um, genres into this wonderful extent diversity that we embrace, particularly in the United States. Are, are you seeing that trend as something um, that we really can use to help particularly our children grow and understand the great diversity around us? Absolutely. You know, I, I think that first and foremost, we're seeing a lot of, um, a lot of kids who have, haven't seen themselves represented in comics and movies identifying with characters um, way more than they ever have. Uh, you know, the, the, the Spider-Man that you're speaking of, his name is Miles Morales, and um, I sat in, a, in the audience at a panel at a comic convention recently, and all of the presenters were high school kids. And three of the African-American teens who were in, up on the panel talking about it said that their favorite comic, by and large, was Miles Morales, you know, and... And they, and, and they weren't they, they weren't scripted. They were really speaking openly and honestly. And, and one of them said, you know, the reason why I like Miles Morales is because he's a kid like me. And he deals with teenage issues, and he's got, you know, these problems that he's trying to solve, but he's got these superpowers, and it's cool to read about that. And, you know, and hearing, hearing somebody say something like that, it really opened my eyes as a white man to realize, like, you know, all the stories that I had been reading as I grew up were all about the... Um, you know, the characters that represented me, Peter Parker represented me, Tony Stark represented me. And and now that I'm seeing all these different kinds of creators uh, create these characters of color, create these superheroes that are lesbian or gay or, or you know, um, all different uh, I, um, across the whole spectrum of, of cultures and races and identities, we're seeing the kids and the readership increasing. Um, you know, the most recent statistic that I saw was that females now represent about 45% of all comic readership. Um, you know, and when I grew up, when I went to my first comic convention, my mom was the only female in the room because she had to drive me there. Um, you know, and, and now we're seeing this, this, this massive explosion of all types of people that are consuming and participating and creating the, the, the kinds of pop culture expressions that, that we're enjoying. That truly is, for me, one of the greatest things about these, this movement with popular culture being such an important part of our lives and, and our storytelling lives in particular, because they are telling stories that, that can identify with a wide range of people and particularly a wide range of children and teens as they're going through all of these developmental needs. So how do you and your your pop culture classroom project, how do you make those connections? What is your mission to try and help bring the world of education and the world of pop culture together? So 
um, we do a number of things uh, that that we kind of group into two different categories. One of which is direct services, and the other is indirect services. So the direct services are when we we have about twelve teachers that go to locations, including schools, um, community organizations like girls and boys clubs, libraries, and we also work in correctional facilities. And with all the programs that we do, our goal really is to increase literacy. Um, and so that literacy, as, as we see it, can, can, can fall across a number of different categories. It could be reading and writing literacy. It could be scientific literacy or critical thinking or artistic literacy. Um, and, and we teach skills that deal with those kinds of things. For example, when we go into correctional facilities, we teach a, you know, a seven-ish week program where we go in twice a week and the inmates come into the class and we give them a graphic novel to read. They go, they go back to their cell and they read it and they come back the next day with their homework completed, vocabulary exercises, conversation questions, reading comprehension. And then there's a book club conversation about the graphic novel. Um, you know, one of the books I mentioned earlier, Yummy, is one of the books we read in there. And a lot of the, a lot of the inmates really identify with that story. Um, you know, we had just recently there was a, uh, an inmate who commented. He said, you know, you see that, 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 that bait shop that's on page 73? I used to go there. That's where I bought my bait. I'd go shrimping right there in that same canal they went on the graphic novel. So, these, you know, the, the connections that we're seeing with these graphic novels are profound. Um, after the book club studies, we'll go ahead and we'll teach the we'll teach the students about storytelling techniques, about vocabulary of comics, about drawing techniques, and give them time to practice those and create their own comics themselves. So, um, all of the traditional literacy lessons about storytelling, about story arc, and vocabulary, and character development, and setting, we're teaching those things through the lens of pop culture. Um, you know, instead of what I had to do a lot as a teacher was kind of um, you know, provide as much choice as possible to get the kids invested in what they were doing. Um, and, and what this does is it kind of takes that choice to the next level by saying, I'm not going to try to convince you to meet me where I am. I'm going to say, hey, let's find educational footing where you're at, where you're motivated, where you're interested. And then I will, I will shape my instruction around that so that we can have that much more success. That idea of starting where they're at and helping them move forward, I think, is very profound and helps us as concerned adults really understand this kind of connection. So as we close up our conversation today, Ilya, could could you tell our audience maybe what is the one thing that you would wish them to take away from our conversation today? And, and maybe what is that one thing that would be the, the most important thing that you could tell our audience out there about pop culture and, and its great ability to help us develop literacies? I think, I think I'd like the audience to understand that pop culture is a powerful opportunity and avenue to ignite imaginations in all students. And that um, teachers and parents can use pop culture as an opportunity to connect with their kids and students. Uh, and it's through that relationship that real learning can happen. A perfect way to sum it up. Thank you so much, Ilya, for helping us see pop culture in a brand new light. Ilya Kowalczyk works with a wonderful project called the Pop Culture Classroom. 
Next, come with me as I step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life. Today, I have Ann Cannon and Margaret Neville of the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City to talk about the kinds of books that make great holiday gifts. The so. Great Spruce oh, by John Duvall. Book. Actually, beautifully illustrated. Uh, where do those big trees come from that decorate our the fronts of ice skating rinks, and they used to put one downtown on Main Street. I think it's in Mm -hmm. a gateway now, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But where do those trees come from? And isn't it a little bit of a crime that they cut them down in this era? So this is the story about a boy who defends the tree that he has grown up in. And we follow the tree on its path um, into the city and then back to where it belongs. It's uh, it's a terrific book. It reminded me a little in terms of nonfiction, which is uh, how the dinosaur bones got to the museum. Oh, right. yes. It has a touch of that flavor to it. But um, really, Christmas should be about those moments that are important to us, not about all, as we talk, the stuff. I love this book. Mm-hmm. That was a lot of fun. That's lovely. Okay. Ann Cannon and, brought some of her yeah, old favorites. Yeah, any, just th- very, let's jump in with, with a few other holiday ones. Some 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 great reads year after year. Humphrey's First Christmas by Oh, Carol I love Heiner. that book. Yeah, a point of view of Camel, really, you know, he's just too good for his own skin, and uh, but he winds up at the, the birth of Jesus and it's a great story. It's yeah. just, and it's a good looking book too. Yeah. Um, this is a good, The Nativity, illustrated by Julie Vivas, is one of my all time favorites. I just love the humanness. It, it's almost done in a sort of a cartoon style, which may be off putting to some people. But when Mary looks tired after she's given birth, I was so in. <laughs> yeah. I went, yes. This, this is, is real. This is real. So. And it's got a naked baby Jesus in it, which so makes it cute. really cute. Yes. Which even makes it more real. More yes. babies are naked. naked. When they're born. They're born. <laughs> and then finally, Holly and Ivy, which is an old, old, old rumor garden story illustrated by Barbara Cooney, who did Miss Rumpheus. It's a, it's a lot of text, but it's a lovely story about what happens when you wish at Christmas. Oh, Barbara My, Cooney is just just gorgeous. Her stuff is amazing, yeah. and that's that's a wonderful story. Any yeah. any other ones well, you'd like to jump I, in oh, and add? I love that one. <laughs> Wombat Divine works so well for the eight and under crowd because it is about that ubiquitous Christmas pageant. <laughs> Um, and as a former Sunday school teacher, there are many things about that event that are <laughs> harrowing at best. So because it's Mem Fox, of course, it's set down under and Wombat is desperate to have a part in the Christmas pageant. If you or anyone you know or love has to put up with a Christmas pageant, be in a Christmas pageant, you will love this holiday oh, book. I love that yeah. book. Charmer. Yeah. Oh, um, this is the book that... Actually, somebody at the store said as I walked out with it, they didn't like it. And I said, <laughs> I don't care. Red Ranger came calling, Berkeley Breath, uh, the guy that did Opus and still is doing Opus, uh, writes a story about his own childhood. Uh, it's told also in cartoon form with his very odd pictures. Doesn't even really look like a Christmas book. Um, and is Santa going to come? This is a story about that anticipation and what could happen or what could not happen. And it is grounded I, in something that actually happened to, to Berkeley. And at the end of the book is a photograph of a tree embedded, or a bike embedded in a tree. And that's where Christmas started for this story. Ooh, okay. Ooh. Now that, it's a lot that's of text. A, that's it's a, that's it's when aimed, we're gonna at run older, out aimed at older yeah. kids. And then I'm ending with um, one that everyone in this room, I'm sure will be nodding their heads. Uh, local author, illustrator, Mark Beener, 
And his wife, Carolyn, are famous for their snowmen at night books, books we love, love, love. Um, Mark was asked to illustrate this classic story by Pearl Buck uh, called Christmas Day in the Morning. Frankly, it is the meeting of two great talents in ways that, uh, you know, there aren't really words to describe. If you only if I only pulled out one Christmas book every year, this might be it. Um, A young man and they're getting ready for the holidays. It's the Depression era, basically. Um, And he figures out that the best thing he can give his dad is getting up and doing the chores. Yeah, it's a great story. It's a great story. And actually, if people that know the Beaners, Mark's in here a couple places. Oh, I didn't know. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. No, no, that's a little tip we didn't know. Oh, that's oh, he's, him. He's in the he's yes, in the, he's in, in, the book. in the book, sleeping in the bed with the time yeah. clock. And the, well, I think so, it's, yeah. So yeah, yeah if, you, if you're looking at that, you can see it. See I love it. Yes, actually, uh, this is my advice for everybody that goes to weddings, and you go to a lot of weddings down here, people. So th- <laughs> this is good advice. Um, every married couple should own the gift of the Magi. Mm-hmm. Do you know well, and this good this is present. one this one that you have here in the studio that our audience can't see is illustrated by P.J. Lynch. And I love P.J. Lynch's illustrations. I do, too. I mean, P.J. Lynch is, you know, Cooney, P.J. Lynch, right. the Beaners. If You know, those are names that even if you don't want to buy these holiday books. Yeah. Well, he did Jonathan Toomey. Oh, he did Jonathan Toomey. And he, he, is, did, he did my favorite edition of East of the Sun, West of the Moon. Right. Christmas Carol. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gorgeous, gorgeous, but, gorgeous illustrators. Right, so. Yeah. You can get the gift of the Magi after the holidays because... You own one of your own. There you go. <laughs> there you go. So this is post-holidays. Yeah, right. Right. That that stick is. it in that present box for that wedding you have to go there to. There you go. So we've got we've got all of our gift giving covered for the, yes, for the next little oh, while. Barely. Well, thank you so much, ladies. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for some great nonfiction tips and then also some wonderful holiday books that we can look forward to. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'd like to thank Ann Cannon and Margaret Neville for being with me today. We've had a great show. First, we talked with author Frida Wyszynski about different stories that we tell. Then we heard from author Margaret Blair Young about how to bridge the gap between cultures. Our last guest was Ilya Kowalczyk, and we talked about how to make cultural connections with children. We also had a couple of holiday features that will continue on the show all month long. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting for us next week. Thank you for exploring with us.